Twilight Zone went on the air when? What? 1959 through 1962. And what was the reaction to it in general? I mean, the first, the first year, what happened? Of course, you see, you have to gauge that in the strange arithmetic of television, which is very close to insanity. Uh, I think in its best run, Twilight Zone got roughly a 31 or a 32 share, which in television terms says that it is a mild success. It is not a runaway hit. It's not gun smoke. And it's a very questionable item as to whether or not we'll renew it if indeed something else comes along that looks much more publicly acceptable. It's sufficiently healthy to warrant their continuing to take a look at it. Now, what that 31 share meant was approximately 25 million people watching, which is a fair-sized audience. That's more than what Shakespeare, you know, during the first hundred years. But in the strange, again, as I say, the strange arithmetic of, the tele arithmetic of television, this was not considered a major show. Oddly enough, the show became more popular after it went off the air in terms of the name Twilight Zone being kind of interchangeable with you know, strange little witticisms throughout our language. It became a funny little uh, colloquialism that people used. Way back in 1951, when television was just a baby, a young man sat in a Cincinnati diner with his wife and came to a momentous decision. He decided to give up the security of his job and take a chance in becoming a freelance television writer. I was traumatized into writing by war events, by going through a war in a combat situation and feeling the desperate sense of the terrible need for some sort of therapy. Get it out of my gut, write it down. This is the way it began for me. Well, depending, of course, on the thematic treatment you're using, if you have the temerity to try to dramatize a theme that involves any particular social controversy currently extant, then you're in deep trouble. For instance? Uh, a racial theme, for example. My the case in point, I think, uh, a show I did for the Steel Hour some years ago, three years ago, called Noon on Doomsday, which was a story which purported to tell what was the aftermath of the alleged kidnapping in Mississippi of the Tillboy, the young Chicago Negro. And I wrote the script using black and white uh, initially. Then it was changed uh, to suggest an unnamed foreigner. Then the locale was moved from the south to, the, to New England. And I'm convinced they'd have gone up to Alaska or the North Pole if and using Eskimos as a possible minority, except I suppose the costume problem was of sufficient severity not to attempt it. But it became a lukewarm, vitiated, emasculated kind of show. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind, uh, will they love it in Des Moines? Well, they understand it in New Orleans and consequently will deliberately prostitute and write downward to what, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. I protested. I went down fighting, as most television writers do, thinking in a strange, oblique, philosophical way that better say something than nothing. Pre-censorship is a practice, I think, of most television writers. I can't speak for all of them. This is the prior knowledge of the writer 
of those areas which are difficult to try to get through. And so a writer will shy away from writing those things which he knows he's going to have trouble with on a sponsorial or an agency level. We practice it all the time. We just do not write those themes which, you know are going, which we know are going to get into trouble. You pose a problem here. The creator has this problem. Say he wants to tackle any current social evil, which most men of goodwill must admit is, in a sense, an evil. And however you slice it, whatever your political spectrum, whatever your, you know, innermost beliefs, uh, any government which usurps the legitimate aspirations and legitimate aims and legitimate functions of a people is, by nature, more, more bad than good. He did not want that awful association made between what was the horror and the misery of Nazi Germany with the nice, chrome, wonderfully antiseptically clean, beautiful kitchen appliances that they were selling. Now this is an, is an example of sponsor interference which is so beyond logic and which is so beyond taste. This I rebel against. I think it's criminal that we're not permitted to make dramatic note uh, of, of social evils as they exist, of controversial themes as yeah. they are, are, are inherent in our society. I, I think it's ridiculous that drama, which by its very nature should make a comment on those things that affect our daily lives, is in a, is in a position, at least in terms of television drama, of not being able to take, these, to take this stand. But this is the, these are the facts of life. This is the way it exists. And they can't look to me or Shayevsky or Rose or Gorby Dahl or J.P. Miller or any of these guys as the, as the uh, precipitators of the big change, it's not for us to do it. Inherently, you cannot be commercial and artistic. You cannot be commercial and quality. You cannot be commercial concurrent with having a, a preoccupation with the level of storytelling that you want to achieve. And this I have to reject. I think you can be, I don't think calling something commercial tags it with a kind of an odious suggestion that it stinks, that it's something raunchy to be ashamed of. In 11 or 12 years of writing, Mike, I can lay claim to at least this. I have never written beneath myself. I've never written anything that I didn't want my name attached to. I have probed deeper in some scripts, and I've been more successful in some than others. But all of them that have been on, you know, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take my lick. I, I, they're mine, and that's the way I wanted them. Uh, somebody asked me the other day if this means that uh, uh, I'm going to be a, a, uh, a meek conformist. And I, my answer is no, I'm just acting the role of a tired nonconformist. And I don't want to fight anymore. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. Some television's wonderful. Some television is exciting and promising and has vast potential. Some, media, some television is mediocre and bad. But uh, I think it has promise, Mike. I think this is, can conceivably be a real art form. And I stick with it for the reasons I said and because I think that 
uh, it can only improve and can improve tremendously and I think aims toward that. man walks alone into the unknown. A man who has not only seen combat on the battlefield as a soldier, but has battled for the integrity of his chosen profession, that of a writer, with the executives and censors of the day. And while he bears the scars of those battles in more ways than one, this man realises that there is more than one way to fight this battle. And sometimes the only way to win it is to appear like you've actually laid down your weapons and you're fighting the war on their terms. Is pre-censorship though involved? Are you simply writing easy? In this particular area, no, because we're dealing with a half-hour show which cannot probe like a 90, which doesn't use scripts as vehicles of social criticism. These are strictly for entertainment. These are pot boilers. Oh no, uh -uh. I wouldn't call them pot boilers at all. No, these are very adult. Uh, I think high quality half our extremely polished films but because they deal in the areas of fantasy and imagination and science fiction and all, all of those things uh, there's no opportunity to cop a plea or, or chop an axe or anything another man walks alone into his makeshift studio with a faint recollection of a show from his childhood a mental collage of shadow and substance of things and ideas. And as he plays the clip we've just heard, he naively wonders why the first man has said those things. Because the show he remembers was more than just entertainment. But this man is perhaps not as well versed in the work of the first as he would become. And he doesn't realize that the first man is playing his cards close to his chest because he's about to hide his message in plain sight for an audience who think they're just about to simply watch a science fiction television show. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow between science and superstition and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge this is the dimension of imagination it is an area which we call the twilight zone The place is here, the time is now, and the journey into the shadows that we're about to watch could be our journey. First broadcast on the 2nd of October 1959, written by Rod Serling and directed by Robert Stevens. And before we talk about this episode, I have to say that coming back to where is everybody after almost 10 years is a strange and in some ways quite emotional experience. I don't watch ahead in the Twilight Zone as I run through the show, 
but that also means I very rarely watch behind. I just watch where I am. And we come back to this together on the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone with almost 10 years of Twilight Zone podcasts behind us. So this is a different experience now. It is a weightier experience. When Mike Ferris walks into this empty town, it is so disarmingly simple. One man, one town, and a mystery. But the weight of what we know comes next places this in a whole new light. Because in a show without continuity between episodes, by accident or design, Rod Serling and Robert Stevens have placed a perfect beginning to this whole thing right in front of us. Because this story is not just Mike Ferris walking into an empty town, this story is all of us walking into the twilight zone. Things seem familiar, recognisable even, but something just isn't right. Ordinary people in extraordinary situations and an extraordinary place. But before we speak about what is familiar, let's take a moment to speak about what's not familiar, the alternate opening narration that wasn't used by Westbrook Van Voorhees. Now as the legend goes, Orson Welles' name was very much on the list for the job of narrator, but it was Rod Serling who didn't really care for that idea. So eventually, they went with a man who is less famous but still very much known for the use of his voice, and that man was Westbrook Van Voorhees. There is a sixth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the sunlight of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area that might be called the twilight zone. Now there isn't a great deal written about the man who would almost become the voice of one of the most beloved and enduring shows of all time, but what we do know is that he was born in 1903 and had he remained on the Twilight Zone, providing it got to five seasons, he would only have outlived it by a few years because he passed away in 1968. And his voice was his stock in trade and he may be best remembered for the March of Time radio and newsreel series where his booming voice earned him the nickname, The Voice of Doom. The March of Time! The new President of the United States will be charged with a large variety of responsibilities when he takes office in January. Among the greatest of these is the direction of the nation's atomic energy program, America's most important industry. This $10 billion enterprise... 
But although his voice is so very serious and so very earnest, he wasn't beyond poking a little fun either, like we hear in his Quaker Oats cereal commercials. The great Quaker Life debate rages on. I say Quaker Life cereal is for adults. It's packed with the nutrition you need on those days when you're spending a lot of time in the rough. How can anybody who's famous for eating buffalo steaks know anything about food? Kids eat Quaker Life just because it tastes so good. Nutritious enough for adults, good tasting enough for kids. Quaker Life must be for everybody. So with all credit to Westbrook Van Voorhees, it is quite difficult to critique his Twilight Zone narration because let's face it, he's never going to come out on top after 60 years of us listening to Rod Serling and he's also hampered with an opening monologue that is close to the Serling version but is different in some key ways. Like he says, there is a sixth dimension and he says that it might be called the Twilight Zone. So now after all these years, the effect of that is that it's like listening to someone with a poor memory trying to remember the Twilight Zone opening narration. But again, that's not really his fault. His style of portent of doom narration was very much the business as usual of the time for a lot of television shows. And as well as this, in the opening credits of this alternate Twilight Zone, there is this 3D-like metallic font that is very reminiscent of 50s flying saucer B-movies, and this is instead of the more ethereal font that they ended up using, and I think the decision to change things like this really shows how on the ball they were. With several television shows, you go back to the first episodes and you're often surprised that actually things weren't all in place the way they ended up being down the line. They'll take a few episodes, sometimes whole seasons, to figure out what works and they'll quietly retire what doesn't. But with the Twilight Zone, they've really made these smart choices early to jettison these two things that just don't work. And let's face it, the show hits the ground running. The first season is filled with classics. So to the Twilight Zone host who never was, we still raise a glass. There isn't a person listening to this who isn't thankful that Rod Serling eventually stepped behind the microphone and then eventually in front of the camera. But Westbrook Van Voorhees is at least part of the story, the rich tapestry that makes up the Twilight Zone. Eggs over easy, hash browns. Hey, you got a customer out here. Ham and eggs, eggs over easy, hash brown. Our first Twilight Zone scene is a slightly noisy affair with the loud music, but it also gifts me one of the things that I love most about the show, and that is a nice slice of Americana. The American Diner is a location that will pop up time and time again in the Twilight Zone. So why is it such a fascinating and appealing place? for this British Twilight Zone fan. And I suppose it's the same kind of appeal that a genuine British pub has to some people not born on British shores. You know, all countries have bars, but a British pub 
has a flavour all of its own, and I suppose that is the same for the American diner for me. Not only does it have all of these classic pieces of Americana, the stools at the counter, and the jukebox by the wall, but it is also a hub for American life, which makes it all the more unsettling when there is none here. But not only that, as the coffee pot on the stove shows, the impression is that people were just here, and that Mike Ferris has just missed them. But where have they gone? Are they running from some threat that Mike will now have to face? Or are they hiding from him, and they mean him some harm? So while Mike Ferris pours himself a cup of coffee, let's meet the man who was chosen to shepherd this first Twilight Zone into existence. The director is Robert Stevens, and he is as safe a pair of hands as you could want for the first episode of an anthology television show. Now I often talk about my love for American radio, and one of the giants of American radio is the long-running show Suspense. And in between 1949 and 1952, Suspense was adapted for television in a 262 episode run. And this was the time when episodes would be performed live for television, and the man who directed at least 105 of them was Robert Stevens. Now just as an aside, Rod Serling, who wrote an episode of Suspense called Nightmare at Ground Zero, was not the only television show host of the time. And while we heard Rod Serling earlier on talking about sponsors, and of course in some of his after-show appearances in the Twilight Zone he would actually advertise cigarettes, let's spare a thought for the host of Suspense, Rex Marshall, who would have to do this at the beginning of some episodes. And now... Suspense. Your host is Autolite, and this is Rex Marshall, speaking for the Autolite family. You know, Autolite serves throughout the world, wherever men travel. And the worldwide Autolite family includes among its members the greatest names in the industry, those who use Autolite products as original equipment. It also includes some 30,000 men and women in Autolite plants in the United States, Canada, and many foreign countries, as well as thousands of Autolite dealers, distributors, and authorized Autolite service stations who supply Autolite products and authorized Autolite service to car, truck, tractor, airplane, and boat owners everywhere. Tonight so Robert Stevens was one of the hard-working directors of the day, and by the time he got to the Twilight Zone, he had really put that work in. He also directed 44 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and won an Emmy for his work on that show, but also had a hand in several anthologies of the time. Now considering he would often direct multiple episodes of television shows, he only directed two Twilight Zones. But if you're only going to direct two episodes of the Twilight Zone, then you couldn't really pick two better episodes to direct. The first episode, and also one of its most beloved episodes, Walking Distance. And his final directing job before his retirement 
was quite fittingly an episode of an anthology show, the 1987 episode of Amazing Stories called Moving Day. But tragically for Robert Stevens, his life would end in a particularly sad and senseless way. In 1989, at the age of 68, he was robbed and beaten in his home, and on August 7th of that year, he died of a heart attack in hospital. So in this era of television where the medium was constantly developing and evolving, he was one of its pioneers. So here on the 60th anniversary of his episode, we raise a glass of golden delight to the man and thank him for his contributions to the Twilight Zone and to television. I got $2.85 American money. Sure, American money. Well, we got that much settled. I'm an American. You see, there's some question about my identity. Let me put it to you this way. I'm not sure who I am. But I got $2.85 and I'm hungry. That much is established. $2.85 and I'm hungry. I'm going to wake up in a minute. I know it. I'm going to wake up. The heavy lifting in this episode is, of course, done by Earl Holliman, who has the unenviable task of selling this ongoing solo monologue. You know, some people do talk to themselves, but let's face it, most of us don't. So to make this believable is a tough job, and it's one of the things that Rod Sailing came to dislike about this episode down the line. And Mark Zickery documents this in The Twilight Zone Companion, where he suggests an alternate way of having Mike actually say things instead of just talking into thin air. So in this diner scene, he says, seat Ferris on the counter, take a shot through the door, and there's a little white cloth that moves like an apron of a cook. And you say, hey buddy, I'd like ham and eggs. You got quite a town here. You like music? Finally, he goes over, and it's an apron hanging from a hook, blowing in a fan. But you can't continue to make this man talk to a ghost and get any sense of reality at all, and it gets a little ludicrous after a while. So as well as the Westbrook Van Voorhees open narration, there is an alternate version of this Twilight Zone episode on the Blu-ray, and in the broadcast version of Where Is Everybody with the Rod Sailing monologue, at the end of the diner scene, Mike Ferris leans on the counter and wonders whether he's going to wake up soon. But in the Westbrook Van Voorhees narrated episode, this scene is actually longer, but it does take Mike Ferris monologuing up a notch. So I wonder whether this was cut because even then, they felt it was all a bit too much. You see, there's some question about my identity. Let me put it to you this way, I'm not sure who I am. But I got $2.85 and I'm hungry, that much is established. $2.85 and I'm hungry. I'm gonna wake up in a minute, I know it. I'm gonna wake up. I wish there'd be a little noise or something to wake me up. A little noise, please! 
If a body greet a body coming through the rye, if a body meet a body, need a body cry, every laddie had... So when Mike Ferris walks into town, he finds that it too is deserted, but we the audience will probably find it very familiar, because this town square set has been used over and over again in television shows and movies, perhaps one of the most famous being the Back to the Future movies. Hey miss? Miss, over here! Look, I wonder if you could do me a favor. It's the craziest thing, but I've looked and I haven't seen anybody around. Maybe they're all asleep or something, but... <laughs> well, literally, there hasn't been a soul. Look, I don't want you to think I'm nuts or anything. It's nothing like that. It's just that... Well... It's just that I don't seem to remember who I am. Well, it's a real oddball thing, but when I woke up this morning, I... Well, I didn't exactly wake up. I just... I just found myself out on that road, walking. So in this scene, Mike sees what he thinks is a woman in a car, and of course, Earl Holliman has to not only perform, but deliver this exposition too, which is kind of unnatural. But it's something we really just have to go with. But what I do think really works well is that moment where Mike Ferris' voice starts to crack momentarily. It's the point where the desperation of his situation starts to take hold. The I don't really remember who I am moment is played beautifully by the Twilight Zone's first leading man, El Holliman. And after serving in the US Navy as a young man, he first hit the screens in 1952 with a few uncredited roles, such as Elevator Operator in the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comedy, Scared Stiff. So at this time in his career, he was very much still on the up, and classic science fiction fans will know that he has the distinction of being the first of many things brought over from the 1956 classic Forbidden Planet, although the other things tended to be just props. Now apparently, and I can't find the speech itself to confirm this, but Rod Sailing said that during a speech at Sherman Oaks College, that Holliman was running 100 degree temperature at the time of filming. I think the success of Holliman in this episode is while he is the handsome leading man type, there is still a very everyman kind of quality to him. He handles these solo expository monologues as well as anyone could considering what they are. And while his clothing suggests he may be a pilot, the blankness of them also takes away anything to really identify him. So I'm very fond of what Earl Holliman does here and it's almost poetic that the Twilight Zone's first leading man is pretty much the only person in the episode. Hello? 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 Operator? Hello, operator? Hello? Operator? Operator? This is the special operator. Operator, look. I just wonder if anybody down there could tell me. Please 
make sure that you have the right number. Operator. Operator, will you listen to me, please? This is the special operator. The number you have reached is not a working number. Please make sure... Are you out of your heads down there? I didn't dial a number. I dialed the operator. This is a recording. A rec... This operator. Is special operator. Operator, look. All I want to know is where I am. Look, please, can you... Please make sure that you have... Oh. The scene in the telephone kiosk where Earl Hollyman is trapped inside for a moment but then realises he's just not opening the door correctly is actually inspired by a true event in Rod Serling's life. So let's pause for a moment and look at the slightly bigger picture. So the scene was inspired by this moment that is recounted in the Twilight Zone Companion. And Rod Serling says, that's dummy me. The reason I put that in was because I was once in a phone booth trying to catch a plane and I heard the loudspeaker and I started to push on the door and I couldn't get out and I got panicky. I started to yell at people, could you do this? Suddenly some guy comes along and kicks it with his foot. I wanted to die. But what about the name The Twilight Zone? What was that inspired by? Well, also in the Twilight Zone Companion, there is a quote from Rod Serling where he says, I thought I'd made it up, but I've heard since that there is an Air Force term relating to a moment when a plane is coming down on approach and it cannot see the horizon. It's called the Twilight Zone, but it's an obscure term which I had not heard before. I wish I could shake that crazy feeling of being watched. Listen to it. Calling all cars, calling all cars. Unknown man walking around police station. Suspicious looking character. Probably one over the F. So at this point, when Mike Ferris enters the police station, it's almost a shame that he says these words because I think the episode is actually doing a really good job of conveying that anyway. Especially for these moments, like in the police station scene when there's a lit cigar in an ashtray and like when he goes down to the police cells and one of the doors almost swings shut locking him in and if that had happened we'd have been watching a very different episode time to wake up now time to wake up now I suppose that by the halfway point in the episode it does become a succession of scenes in which Mike just goes into different buildings. He goes into a cafe, he goes into a police station, he goes to a drugstore, he goes to a theatre, and so on and so on. But saying that, I do think this is of course what you'd be doing. You'd be walking around trying to find people, trying to find an explanation, and the episode does need to give the character that sense of boredom, of isolation, 
and in the novelised version, Sailing was able to expand on this, and really able to put that feeling of time passing in here. For example, in this scene from the novelization, He took a slow walk down the main street, his 40th or 50th walk down that same street since morning. He passed the now familiar stores, looking into the now familiar doors, and it was the same. Counters, goods unattended. He entered the bank for the fourth time that afternoon, and also for the fourth time, he walked behind the teller's cages, picking up handfuls of money and throwing them aside. Once he lit his cigarette from a hundred dollar bill and laughed uproariously at it suddenly after he'd thrown the half-burnt bill down on the ground, he found himself unable to laugh any longer. All right, so a guy can light a cigarette from a hundred dollar bill, but so what? I just remembered something. Scrooge said it. You remember Scrooge, old buddy, Ebenezer Scrooge? That's what he said to that ghost, Jacob Marley. He said, you may be an undigested bit of beef, a crumb of cheese, a blot of mustard, a fragment of an undone potato, but there's more of gravy than of grave about you. You see, that's what you are. You're what I had for dinner last night. You must be. But now I've had it, I'd like to wake up. I'd like to wake up now. If I can't wake up, at least I'd like to find somebody to talk to. As evening comes, Mike Ferris sits alone in the dark until the streetlights come on and also the lights of the theatre in town. Now the theatre is called the Savoy and this is the first of at least three appearances in the Twilight Zone of the Savoy Theatre. There may be more, but Martin Grams Jr. in the book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic lists this episode, The Dummy, and the trouble with Templeton as episodes where the Savoy appears. So the use of this name, like the use of the brand Golden Delight Whiskey in several episodes, gives us this impression that there is a connection between these stories, no matter how loose it is. But Martin Grams Jr. documents the reason for this, and it's a bit more mundane than slipping some sly continuity into the stories and what he says is that obviously the show would need to have brand names in it but they couldn't use real ones because then you're getting into the realms of product placement and so on so what they would do is if they needed to use a theater name they would look up all the theaters in the country and choose a name that wasn't on that list and then they would be clear to use it So if they needed a theatre name again for a different episode, then they knew they were on safe ground by naming the theatre the Savoy, and they would just use it again. Mike Ferris' entry into the Savoy Theatre is essentially the beginning of the conclusion for this episode, and it's where the tension really starts to ratchet up, and Sailing introduces a bit of action in a nicely staged scene where Mike runs into a mirror. And this sudden burst of action is the final straw for Mike, who runs from the theatre and starts to frantically push the button on a street crossing. And then we get our first Twilight Zone twist. 
What was the matter with me, Doc? Just off my rocker, huh? Just a kind of a nightmare that your mind manufactured for you. You see, we can feed the stomach with concentrates. We can supply microfilm for reading, recreation, even movies of a sort. We can pump oxygen in and waste material out. But there's one thing we can't simulate. That's a very basic need. Man's hunger for companionship. The barrier of loneliness. That's one thing we haven't licked yet. Next time it won't be just a box and a hanger, will it? No, Mike. Next time you'll really be alone. Now, part of Rod Sailing's inspiration in coming up with this episode was walking alone onto a movie set when there was nobody there. But in the episode, Mike Ferris wasn't in a deserted town after all, but he was in an isolation booth. And if we notice, the time on the cracked clock on the wall was the same time that was on the timer that he broke at the beginning of the episode. So with the first episode made and broadcast, it was time for the critics to have their say. And Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic documents a review from Variety magazine, which says, Obviously these flights of imagination can only be as good and as ingenious as the writer. Since the zinger lies in the denouement, it's here where Sailing lets down his audience by providing a completely plausible and logical explanation. Somehow, the viewer can't help but feel cheated, even though Sailing gives it a topicality attuned to the current human experimentations in preparation for space travel. A science fiction ending would be more in the realm of the imagination. And in retrospect, this also became an issue for Rod Sailing, and in the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia by Steve Rubin, he documents this, and Rod Sailing said, In the short story I wrote of this, it had a marvellous gimmick. It was a much better short story than it was a television play. When he goes to the theatre, there's nobody giving tickets. So he reaches in and takes a ticket, and he walks in and he tears off the stub, and drops half in the little vestibule there, putting the other half in his pocket. And then you play the whole thing, and then when he goes out of the isolation booth and they're carrying him in on the thing, he reaches in his pocket and there's the ticket stub. Now it doesn't mean anything, except, wait a minute, bang, what happened here? It's a fill-up upon a fill-up. And perhaps this is the reason that Rod Sailing goes on to more or less remake Where Is Everybody at the beginning of Season 2, with the episode King Nine Will Not Return, in which the main character brings back sand from his own delusion. I think there may have been a time when I agreed with Rod Sailing that perhaps Where Is Everybody needed that little element of the unexplained. But I think that time has now passed. Because if this episode has its flaws, they don't matter now. If a different version would have been an improvement, it's a nice story, but I'll take what we got. Because in this series where episodes don't have connective tissue between them, they don't have story arcs to keep the viewers on board, by accident or design, 
Rod Sailing gave it the perfect start. Because for 60 years, each time a new viewer watches Mike Ferris walk alone into that town, they start their own long walk too. Maybe this episode doesn't have that element of the unexplained, but this is the start of a journey that has more than enough of those down the road. So we'll pause for a moment and allow our new travellers in the fifth dimension to breathe a sigh of relief that there is an explanation for all of this and Mike Ferris is okay because we know that when they walk through the next doorway that might not be the case and when Mike Ferris lays on his stretcher and looks up at the stars and says Hey Don't go away up there. Next time it won't be a dream or a nightmare. Next time it'll be for real. So don't go away. We'll be up there in a little while. Again, he is our avatar. He is the audience member who has had a taste of the Twilight Zone and now they're ready to face the unknown, to take the journey no matter where it may take them. There may be better episodes of The Twilight Zone than this, but shuffle the episode order around all you want and you could never find a better and more fitting first episode than this one. It's a shame that Rod Sailing went on to feel less than satisfied with how this worked out and wished that he'd done it differently. But for every Sailing script that never saw production, For every episode that he altered and every story point that he wishes he did differently, there is another dimension where we walk through a doorway and all of those never made things become made. A happy place, a planet of talking apes, a version of Noon on Doomsday that wasn't shredded by the studio. All of these things exist in the Twilight Zone. And while I wouldn't alter a thing about where is everybody, I suppose it's fun to walk through those doorways every now and then to see what might have been. So here on the 60th anniversary of the show that has meant so much to all of us, let's give Rod Sailing the ending that he wanted and take a moment to remember and give thanks to the man who walked into the Twilight Zone alone and then open the doors for all of us to join him. And once you enter the Twilight Zone, as we all know, you never leave. So this one's for you, Rod. There was a moment's silence before the general spoke again. Eris, he asked, what was it like? Where do you think you were? Ferris stared up toward the high ceiling of the hangar and reflected a moment before he spoke. A town, sir, he answered. A town without people, without anybody. A place I don't want to go to again. Then he turned back to look toward the general, and he said, What was wrong with me, sir? 
just off my rocker or something? The general turned toward the medical officer with a nod. The medical officer said softly, Just a kind of nightmare your mind manufactured for you, sergeant. You see we can feed the stomach with concentrates. We can pump oxygen in and waste materials out. We can supply you with reading for recreation and try to keep your mind occupied. There was a silence now as the men surrounding the stretcher looked towards the medical officer. There's one thing we can't simulate, he continued, and that's a very basic need. Man's hunger for companionship. That's a barrier we don't know how to breach yet. The barrier of loneliness. Four aid men lifted Mike Ferris up on the stretcher and carried him across the vast room to the giant doors at the opposite side. He was then carried out into the night, where an ambulance had been pulled up and was waiting. Ferris looked up at a giant moon and thought to himself that the next time it would be for real, not just a hoax in a hangar, but he was too tired to give it much thought. They lifted him gently and were about to place him in the rear of the ambulance when Mike Ferris quite accidentally touched his breast pocket. He felt something stiff and took it out of his pocket. The doors of the ambulance shut on him and left him in the quiet darkness of the inside. He heard the engine start and felt the wheels underneath him and was much too tired to reflect on whatever was in his fingers, just a hand's length from his face. Just a theatre ticket. That's all it was. A theatre ticket from a small movie house in an empty town. A theatre ticket, he thought to himself. And it was in his breast pocket. And as the ambulance engines lulled him to sleep, and the gently rolling wheels made him close his eyes, he held onto the ticket very tightly. In the morning he'd have to ask himself some questions. In the morning, he would have to piece together some impossible fabric of dream and reality. But all that would have to come in the morning. Mike Ferris was much too tired now. Up there, up there in the vastness of space, in the void that is sky, up there is an enemy known as isolation. It sits there in the stars waiting, waiting with the patience of eons, forever waiting in the twilight zone.